Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at SchoolStatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 156, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This week, Georgia drops standardized testing for next year. Will other states follow suit? And I ask our co-host, Christina Pollard, some tough questions about returning to school. Stay with us. Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, a Harvard professor and former education secretary tells us how schools and communities can work together to overcome the disadvantages of poverty. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here. Today is June the 19th of 2020, and I'm joined by our co-host and Laurel Tornado principal, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing? I'm good. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning to you. And, you know, I, I wanted people to kind of know, I said Laurel Tornado, and, and there, if people listen to us all over the country, all over the world, but um, they probably have no idea where Laurel is, unless... They are a fan of um, HGTV. There's a show on HGTV called Hometown, and it's based in Laurel. Um, and so if you're familiar with that show, they should know that that's the same city that you're teaching in, right? Exactly. And let me tell you what's so awesome about that. Our superintendent, and I, I was almost going to say our new superintendent, but she's she's rolling out her third year. Um, when she and her family moved to Laurel, they purchased a home and guess what? They got um, renovated? She was on the show. Yes, she had a renovation oh. and she was on the show. And I just love when they um, run the the show over again and you can catch it. And it's a really cool experience. That is, that is really neat. Yeah, I may, it almost makes me want to move to Laurel just so maybe I'm I can get you. in line and get a house renovated. Well, I'm telling you, her, her house is gorgeous. It's personalized. But I also took some time this week to spend a little time downtown. And I have to tell you, Laurel has it going on. Their downtown is just so quaint and so fun. Um, I walked the sidewalk a little bit. I actually did a little shopping. Yeah, you're some right. Some of the little um, boutiques there. And um, there wasn't anybody in there but the clerk. And so I felt really comfortable. Went in, bought a cute pair of shoes. I mean, and I'm looking forward to to going down a few other um, streets in downtown Laurel, but I, I love just the whole climate that they've created there. So uh, rewind the clock back to like 2000, late 15, maybe 16, somewhere around there. I remember uh, a delegation of the people from Laurel asked to meet with us at the TV station, myself and our general manager. And um, th- this was before hometown had started, but they, they kind of knew it was about to happen. They knew it was in the mm-hmm. works. And yes. They were um, basically saying, like, big things are coming to Laurel. We just want you guys to know. Um, when they had all these other little moving parts and stuff about the downtown and the museum that they have down there, the Lauren Rogers yes. uh, Art Museum. I mean, it's always been there, but I think like everything's just really come together um, right now when you factor in the show. And the I think they're getting tourists there. Like, when you're driving down I-59 Absolutely. towards New Orleans, people who watch yes. the show want to stop in Laurel and, and check things out. So it's really neat. It's they cool do. Too. And you mentioned the museum. I have to tell you that they've expanded their 
services. They have a full education department, an education director. And at my former school, we actually were able to take part in a partnership with them. And they were so kind because they would drive, um, you know, the 25, 30 minutes to my other school to provide art lessons and just expose our students to so much history. And so I'm really excited that I'm actually in the same district that the Lauren Rogers Museum is located in. And I can't wait um, to see how they're going to impact um, our middle school this upcoming year. That is great. It's nice to have them uh, right around the corner. Um, I was uh, watching the news. I think it was yesterday. The story came out. It was on June 18th. And um, I wanted your thoughts on this because it, it seemed to make sense to me. And you as an educator, does this make sense? The state of Georgia is going to submit a waiver to the U.S. Department of Education for suspending all those milestone assessments for next year. I think most districts have done this for at least the past year, but I think George is going to be the first to do it for next year. Is that a good idea? I think it's an excellent idea. They are forward thinking. They are understanding the circumstances. They realize that so much is up in the air. Your reopening plans have to be fluid. The data is constantly changing. Some states are, you know, considering having to close back down because their numbers are rising. Once again, we're still wondering about the resurgence of cases uh, for the fall and how that's going to impact schools, how it's going to impact children who live with, um, those in the vulnerable category. And I just really want to applaud their state leadership for stepping out there and understanding um, requiring a, a, a set of standards is great, but putting that same pressure on classroom teachers to um, lead children to proficiency while trying to figure out how to properly provide um, both face-to-face -face and virtual learning with a pandemic sitting on your shoulder. And what a lot of people don't realize is that um, many school districts are issuing surveys um, out to their parents and many of the questions surround transportation because that plays a key role in just your, your steps for providing instruction in the fall. And without revealing any um, you know data that is still being collected, but I have spoken with other uh, school districts and administrators. There's a good percentage, like over 50% in a lot of different areas so far um, in their data where parents are saying they are not going to send their children to school. So if you, if a school district decides to offer, okay, it's your choice whether you report face-to-face -face or not, You've got to have two different plans in place and you have to be able to provide high quality instruction for those children whose parents have said, no, we want to be a part of your district. We don't want to necessarily homeschool, but we're afraid to send our children to class and expose them to, you know, someone else who might have symptoms. And then you have those that says, nope, absolutely not. My kids are going to school and you need to teach them. So I just think that is way too much pressure to put on teachers. And we're talking about social and emotional learning and supports for students. Now you've opened up a whole new can uh, involving social and emotional supports for teachers. This, this is a lot of stress and pressure that we're putting on teachers. Let's think about our veterans mm -hmm. who are master teachers at getting up in front of a classroom and engaging students and ensuring that learning outcomes are evident. But now we want to turn them into 
master online teachers. And then have high stakes testing on top of that. And I guess, I guess, yes. a, so there's a few things with this, you know, saying we're not going to do the, these tests for next year over in Georgia. One, it's going to be a huge cost savings, right? Like this, these tests are expensive, are they not? Millions of dollars could be saved. Um, if you think about one, the contracts that you pay for as you renew them every year, but then the cost to provide district test coordinator training, then you have school coordinator training, and then all that is involved in shutting down um, schools to provide state testing, which can take anywhere from three to six weeks, uh, depending on your uh, your inventory for your devices, how many people you have to help you with administering and proctoring the assessments. I mean, testing, the testing companies, they make a lot of money. Do you think other states are going to follow Georgia's lead on this? Do you see this I will more? tell you. Based on my Twitter feed, everyone is talking about the decision that Georgia made. And I have to tell you, I hope that um, our leaders in Jackson have taken a look at that. I will say that I um, looked through the, the minutes for the last board meeting for the Mississippi Department of Education School Board, and um, they covered their <laughs> bill for the upcoming year for contracts for testing. Mm -hmm. And so that that changed the, the ball game as we were developing our reopening plans. And it doesn't mean that the state of Georgia is now going to have, you know, low standards and not, not ensure students are receiving high quality instruction and not making sure that learning outcomes are occurring, but it gives teachers the, the freedom to truly serve kids ju and just teach them. Just teach them. Be right. innovative. Yeah. Think out of the box and serve kids. But um, right now, the rest of us are trying to figure out how we're going to meet the needs of students who, whose parents do not want them in the building. Yet, we've got to figure out how to ensure that they can meet their growth goals and or score proficient next spring and may not have ever had a day of face-to-face -face instruction. And with that being said, we can create all the videos we want. We can create all of the um, learning management systems that we want to provide for them, um, hard copies of packets. But I'm, I'm going to again, and I will continue to say this. This is going to be my mantra for a while. You cannot replace a quality, highly, highly qualified licensed teacher. You just can't. No, you can't. No doubt. And and so the other little headline that came out of this out of Georgia was they're also announcing the suspension of teacher evaluations for next year. Would mm -hmm. if, if you guys were to do that, would that affect you as a principal at all? Well, you know, we did that this spring, to be honest. I mean, we still conducted walkthroughs. We still conducted formals um, prior to the pandemic hitting and closing schools, but we did not submit summative evaluations. And that generally, you know, can make or break how a teacher feels about their practice, their, you know, their self-esteem in regard to being a professional. I think that even suspending having formal evaluations, principals will still be in and out of classrooms. Principals will still provide feedback. I think it can still impact on um, what professional development teachers need, either as a staff or even individualized. But it takes the pressure off of a veteran teacher who is across the hall from a teacher who's fresh out of college and has all the techie ideas and skills, but that teacher, you know, we don't expect them to, to to be master teachers of virtual learning just that fast. It may cause us to go back, mm 
take a look at the evaluation rubric, it may need modifications. So I think it's a good idea that they suspended it, but I do believe that they will continue to monitor and evaluate um, if high quality instruction is being provided. And then obviously still providing some type of mini assessments to determine if skills are being mastered so that teachers can move forward um, with covering standard-based instruction. Uh, There was another interesting story out of the New York Times, and they did a survey of epidemiologist. And I think they I think they surveyed about more than 500, but they end up getting answers from about 304. And this is the percentage of when they would send their children back to school or camp or daycare, basically, you know, these larger groups. And um, 70% said they would send back by the fall. And, and I'll break it down even in a more, wow. nu- more nuanced way. Yes. They said 10% of them said right now they would send them back. Um, 20% said this summer, which like, we're basically going into, um, and then 40% said the fall. As for the winter, 7%, next spring, 9%, and then wait a year, 15%. So I would say it's probably fair to say that it looks like, um, sorry, I'm slowing my math here, 14, about 29, 30% um, mm-hmm. said that they're going to be more cautious. But does that surprise you at all? No, it does not. And they need to be cautious. One of the things that you constantly hear on the news, and I won't reference anyone in particular, but they just keep reminding us, this is not over. Mm -hmm. Stay vigilant. Continue to shelter in place if you can. Um, If not, obviously, because (laughs) the world has just kind of opened back up. But, you know, wear your mask, be careful, wash your hands, do a good job of reminding and teaching children um, good hygiene practices. But it, it's going to remain a concern on the back of your, you know, our minds. I'm going to ask you some hard questions that probably don't have good answers, but I still want to get your general reaction. And, and the first one is, what happens next year when students don't wear their mask? They're constantly pulling it down. How forceful do you think yourself and other educators are going to be to make sure they're wearing their mask in the class? Assuming that's Um, the rule. Well, to be honest, we've had that discussion on our administrative team, and you cannot mandate that if you're not going to provide them. That's the first issue. Hmm. You can encourage it. You can ask them. But I don't think it's appropriate to discipline children who don't want to wear their mask. Or, I mean, think about primary age children. Their parents may you know, very well put a mask on them and tell them to wear their mask. And then when they get to school, they're giggling, they're laughing and they're talking. It's hard to breathe because they're so tickled about whatever they're laughing at and they pull their mask down. I mean, they're children. Mm -hmm. This is going to be so difficult for them as well as it's been difficult for the adults over the last few months. But I don't think it's appropriate to take a punitive approach um, to children wearing masks. I think private schools probably have a different, um, set of rules than public schools do, but you have to be very careful and you have to look at your board policies. And so that's a really big thing that school districts are doing right now is taking a look at their policies and seeing what needs to be modified, what needs to be put on hold and what temporary policies need to be put in place. And we all agreed that we just didn't think it would be um, appropriate to mandate children wear their masks. But what we can do is make sure that um, we have signage all over the campus, that we open the day in every homeroom class with social emotional, uh, you know, mini lessons and reminding about uh, personal hygiene, washing hands, controlling how many children go in and out of the bathroom, um, how we handle child nutrition, distribution of meals. I mean, it's going to take a grand effort, but I just think that it would be crazy to punish children 
for not wearing masks. Mm-hmm. One more tough question. And, <laughs> and I know like, I think high schoolers with a hybrid model can work. I, I truly believe that they can get the same, if not very close, or maybe even better. It's just a little bit more like a college type model um, with, right. with learning. Um, so I think that that could work. It's those those crucial years, kindergarten through third grade. Can you confidently say yet, and you may not be able to, and that's fine, but can you confidently say yet that you know kindergarten through third graders aren't going to have a lesser education with a hybrid model? Well, the thing about having a hybrid model, districts have the choice, first of all, to provide five days um, a week of instruction to the primary grade levels. Everyone understands there's absolutely no way to teach reading and to have a child appropriately on grade level by third grade, um, which supports the Literacy Based Promotion Act in our state um, with only two days of instruction. So we'll tell you that a lot of school districts in our state and outside of our state are looking at focusing on a true hybrid model for the secondary schools in order to provide daily instruction for the primary. Oh, grades. so you you think a lot of schools are going to do the hybrid will only apply to like middle school and not possibly. I think that's what's going to happen in a lot of cases. Yeah. And if it does not, one of the other options that we have um, identified is that, you know, you have 50% of your population attending, say, Monday, Tuesday. Mm-hmm. You're shut down on Wednesday for deep cleaning. Um, you have your other 50% on Thursday, Friday, and then Friday night's the second round of deep cleaning. We are also going to use Wednesdays to bring in students with high needs, at risk, special education accommodations. Yeah, tutoring, stuff um, like that. Yes. So they will actually be able to have a third day Mm -hmm. um, of instruction. And so that is a key component of the hybrid model. But I do think a lot of school districts are planning for five days of instruction um, for the primary grades, but still focusing on the CDC um, recommendations of reducing class sizes. So you'll have to use your teacher assistants differently. Mm -hmm. You will have to use your special activity teachers differently. And so it just really changes our approach. Well, those are all excellent answers. I got to tell you, Christina, you always, you must, it's great. It's, you guys have really been thinking this stuff through and every we district's really going to be di- different, but it's so important that we're having these discussions because, you know, you might be triggering ideas for somebody in another district or, or just anybody who's listening um, or giving confidence to people like me, who's just a parent, you know, and, and is uncertain about the future of education. That's right. right. You're going to be a new kindergarten dad. Right. And I'm sure you have a lot of, you know, questions and thoughts about the process, but I would encourage you to to remain positive. I can assure your school district is is really looking at it from every angle possible and wants to do what's best for children. All right, Christina, thank you so much. Um, right before we get to the bright idea, I do want to point out, um, we want to thank all of our fans. I was going through the stats. I used to check the stats all the time on the podcast, and now I kind of check it every now and then. And um, I happened to look at last month's, and we've been on air for, gosh, I think over three years now. And last month, the month of May, we had more listeners than we have had in any month ever. Like, we broke a record. So... That is so awesome. Yeah, I mean, first off, thank you. Thank you for listening. It makes us feel like, you know, we are doing something that's meaningful and that is so much appreciated. And and then also part of me was like, wow, this is great because I, with people not commuting as much and driving as much, I kind of was worried about the podcast world. But to see that, you know, teachers are seeking out, you know, any resource they possibly can and they're downloading and listening, it just, it made me feel good. 
and that's it. You know, the, the, like I shared earlier, um, collaboration is is huge. And that does not necessarily mean face-to-face. It does mean getting ideas, listening to the podcast. But I think our podcast also provides some encouragement for all of us that are kind of in the unknown zone right now. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, we have a phenomenal expert on the show today talking about um, how communities can overcome the disadvantages of poverty in education. Um, He's actually a Mm -hmm. Harvard professor and he just wrote a book. Um, Are you ready for today's Bright Idea? Yes, I'm excited about that. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is a professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, and he's the former Secretary of Education for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Paul Revel also recently co-authored Broader, Bolder, Better, How Schools and Communities Help Overcome the Disadvantages of Poverty. Paul Revel, welcome to Class Dismissed. Nice to be with you, Nick. You and your co-author, Elaine Weiss, uh, you guys open your book, Broader, Better, Bolder, by drawing a picture of the disadvantages of a student living in poverty and what they face on a daily basis. And we have lots of teachers that listen to this and and they probably live this on a daily basis. But if you can, for our listeners, can you illustrate the difference of a student that lives in poverty to a student that does not? Well, you know, I had a class that uh, I I once taught at uh, the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And I began um, about 10 years ago with kind of a portrait of my youngest daughter who was entering kindergarten at roughly the same time as I was teaching the class. And I put a picture of her up on the board and I said, you know, I'd like to think that, um, her ultimate success, uh, in school will be determined, you know, by her genetics and superior parenting, but let's take a look at some of the advantages that she's had growing up. So we began to make a whole list of of factors. It started with um, a stable two-parent family uh, with adequate income, with prenatal care, with health care, with stable housing, with full nutrition, um, with um, being read to every night, travel. By the time she entered kindergarten, I think she'd been to, to, um, you know, maybe three or four continents and 10 or 12 foreign countries, Um, you know, a very rich, full experience. She was going into an urban public school system. She was sitting side by side with children who'd had none of the above, all the things that I just mentioned, and uh, various traumatic incidents, um, adverse childhood experiences on top of it. So you could make a comparable list for the child she was sitting next to, uh, a low-income youngster, more, more likely than not a student of color, uh, and uh, huge disadvantages. And when they come to school, it's as though, you know, uh, my daughter's coming to school, uh, and if you think of it as a 100-yard dash, she's already on the 50-yard line, whereas the kid she's sitting next to who's had all the disadvantage uh, is uh, 100, 100 yards behind the starting line. And we fire the starting gun, and when they don't finish at the same time 13 years later at graduation, we act surprised when we don't, at best, we have an education system that provides them both the same treatment and the same duration of uh, instruction and opportunity. And it just isn't enough to make up for the profound differences outside of school. And that was it. I think you just said those key words. It's it's all about what's happening outside of school. It seems like we've been for decades trying to address this issue by, you know, making everything equal inside those walls of the school. But it seems like now there's this push and, and probably what's driving you to, to write this book that's saying we've got to address more than what's happening inside those school walls. Am, am I wrong? 
No, that's exactly, um, you know, the origin of this book, the origin of our work at the Education Redesign Lab is that we've had basically a 25, 30 year experiment in this country with education reform, with optimizing schools in the spirit of Horace Mann, the founder of the public education, modern public education system in the United States in the late 19th century, who thought that schools would be the great equalizer. And it was a radical idea in his time. <clears throat> Bring everybody into a common school, irrespective of race, religion, gender, uh, socioeconomic background, give them a common treatment, and then you will have created, uh, ipso facto, a uh, meritocracy, and talent and effort would rise to the top. Well, it never worked very well, but it's working even less well than it used to work now. Uh, children, after all, spend only 20% of their waking hours. It's important to, to focus on that. Between the ages of kindergarten and grade 12, they spend 20% of their waking hours <clears throat> in school. The other 80% is outside of school. And we know from research and our own personal experience, people learn as much outside of school as inside of school. And you've got four or five times more time outside of school than in school. So if you only fix the school, and if you treat everybody equally when they're in the school, you're not going to get you're not going to get a closing of the gaps because the access to opportunity outside of school is controlled by your financial and social capital. And we live in a society now, as has been recently demonstrated uh, quite vividly, where you know it, th there are huge disparities in wealth, income, and opportunity, and uh, that favor those who are affluent. And, and hugely disadvantage those who aren't. Uh, let's talk about solutions. And as I was reading, it looks like, in your opinion, the solution lies not so much with maybe federal authorities, or maybe they don't even have the resources now, but maybe so more so with municipalities and the fabric of the community that makes up those cities. We're very hopeful about <clears throat> something that uh, others uh, have dubbed the new localism, the idea that with all the deep divisions and uh, uh, kind of volatility and, and divisiveness in our national discourse now, that it's folks at the local level who are best suited and have the best track record in sitting down and coming together to, uh, to address persistent problems, to check their swords and shields at the door and sit down at a table and, uh, and for example, focus on young people and say, what do we need to do? in order to prepare our young people to be successful in this community, because we know the community's future and the community's prosperity will depend upon our capacity to educate all of our children to a high level. And simply providing them with a school by itself isn't enough to get that job done. So what else do we need to do? So I think we can show the strategies and the ways of accomplishing that at the local level. We won't be able to do it without federal resources. And, and state resources coming in because, you know, wealth is so widely distributed across local communities and so highly variable. And, you know, right now, given the current budget crises as a result of the problems mm. we're having in society, the federal government really is in the best position to provide needed aid. Uh, but overall, we're very hopeful about solutions arising at the local level. Uh, can you offer some examples of progress? Where, have you seen these ideas work anywhere? Oh, yeah. We, you know, there are many, many communities which are, are putting these ideas to work. For example, uh, we have here in, in Salem, Massachusetts, they've adopted a program called City Connects, and they have a plan. They've developed an individualized success plan for every child from kindergarten to grade eight. 
and the teacher um, uh, connects with the, um, the student and with the family. They develop a plan and they track progress against that plan. The adults convene around the plan to provide the supports and services that each child needs, and uh, and that's that's enormously helpful. We've had many of our um, our organizations or ones like uh, the organizations that we work with in our By All Means initiative. Uh, come together and focus, for example, on the whole family. Um, there's an organization in uh, North Minneapolis uh, that works on, you know, a multi-generational approach. There's an organization called Empath here in, in Boston that does the same thing that says the health and well-being of the child is going to depend directly on the health and well-being of the family. So they concentrate resources and interventions on getting health care on getting jobs, on getting housing stability uh, for the parents so that the parents can provide a stable household for the children. Uh, we have examples in the book where we've um, you know, had communities come together and say, you know, the number one deficit that we have in our community is a lack of early childhood. So they begin to pour uh, all kinds of local resources and emphasis and advocacy into making uh, early childhood education available. Uh, one community, rural community, actually created an early childhood center on a bus and took the bus out to people in remote communities to provide education services there. We've got lots of examples of faith-based communities bringing together services and supports, everything from nutrition to mental health care available to families. Um, you know, the list goes on and on. People have been doing it for time and memoriam in, in, in American communities, uh, but it changes. For example, with the Internet, we have examples of, in the book where you know, people have used Facebook and other um, social media platforms to, um, to kind of advertise needs that kids in a community have. There was one instance in which a, a young man had gotten a very good construction job, but he couldn't take the job literally because he didn't have boots and they required him to have boots. Uh, somebody uh, created a platform in that community, put that need up there. And within two days, sure enough, a woman whose husband had bought a pair of boots but never used them and he'd retired, uh, got the boots, got them to the kid, and he got a job that was a life-changing opportunity for him. Um, so there are all kinds of ways in which our communities you know, come together and figure out, you know, basically what they're trying to design and build is a cradle-to-career pipeline where you've got the formal school systems, early childhood, K-12, and higher ed, and wrapped around that are systems of support and opportunity. And building out that cradle-to-career pipeline is what we believe is the solution here, because that's what affluent families do for their children, because they have the resources to do it. But we need public systems that provide those opportunities and that support for all children, since we know that those opportunities and supports are critical to success, which is why more affluent families have higher rates of success with their children, because they're able to provide those supports and opportunities. So if we're really serious about no child left behind or every student succeeds, then we've got to build these cradle-to-career pipelines in all of our local communities. I think anyone listening to this would uh, say those are phenomenal examples and they would agree wholeheartedly that that is what we need to do. We need to to support not just the student, but the entire family. But you've been at, at the top. I mean, you've been a former secretary. You, you were a former secretary of education for a state. I know you've advised governors. How do you actually do that in practice? That seems so hard and takes more than just a school district leading the charge there. 
Yeah, this isn't, uh, you know, we've made a big point in the at the Education Redesign Lab in our By All Means initiative of saying this is community business, not school business. Schools should not be responsible, you know, for health care and housing and medical care and mental health care and, and things of that nature. It's incidentally, they're, they're winding up doing a lot of that because um, children aren't covered and school people are compassionate people. But in, a, in an ideal world, the whole community comes together to provide those supports and opportunities for young people. Now, in order to do all those things that are needed for every child, that's a substantial commitment in our society to the development of human capital. And it is true, we can, we can pull together as communities and we can make interventions at certain points along that pipeline that I was talking about. But one of our biggest challenges is developing the public will to say we should do for all children what those of us who have privilege do for our own children. And we're not there yet. I, I honestly think this current crisis, which has revealed these inequities so vividly, and, mm-hmm. and drawn public consciousness to the kinds of gaps that we are showing that exist in opportunity and support in ways that uh, we were just unable to do before this crisis, that we have an opportunity. The window's coming open to make a case for this, but it will take a deeper investment by our society. You know, we tend to have a society which is sort of laissez-faire, Darwinian, everybody for themselves, um, everybody independent, not doing much collectively for one another. And I think we're, you know, as we look around the world and societies that make a deeper investment in human capital um, are better able to weather storms like the ones that we're currently facing. Well, I'll ask kind of somewhat of a, maybe might be a brutal question. I mean, we're, we're, I'll set this up as we're sitting at a time where we can't even get an entire country to wear masks at the same time. How can we all get behind a, a large effort like this? Well, I think we'll only get behind it if we feel that in some way our nation is imperiled. And, uh, you know, I've, I've likened the current crisis to uh, a Sputnik moment. When the Sputnik went up in the late 1950s, the Russians put a satellite into space before the United States and surprised the United States. And we, th- we began to think our whole nation was at risk, our defense, our security was at risk that the Soviet Union had outpaced us in education and technology, and we needed urgently to correct for that. And the federal government got much more deeply involved than it ever had been in public education. I think this is a similar moment. I think this crisis has revealed the deep inequities and the enormous cost to society of, for example, having some people who have health care and others who don't having some people who have jobs that pay them adequately and those who don't. Um, You know, all kinds of inequities are being uh, brought to the surface here. And I think that if we don't attend to those, we're going to be experiencing the economic effects of this in negative ways for a long time to come. So I think there's, again, a moment here, and it's compounded by the growing awareness of how many of these inequities track directly with matters of race in our society. Are you optimistic? I am optimistic. I think we're, I think we're you know, we're not going to get all the way to where I'm, I'm suggesting we go idealistically, but I think we're going to make some substantial progress here. You dedicate a whole chapter on empowering mayors. Like, how do you get at the local level 
your city leadership to get on board with an idea like this? Well, we've we've gone looking for mayors who share our point of view, and we didn't find it very hard to find them. You know, mayors around the country realize that the future of their community depends on the young people. The quality of life in their community depends on whether or not families feel it's a good place to raise children. The quality of life and the prosperity of the economy depends on are there young people who have the skills and knowledge to do 21st century jobs? So most mayors sense this is critically important to the future of our society that we do a better job than we have been doing at educating our young people to be citizens and workers in the 21st century. And that schools alone, frankly, haven't been strong enough to get the job done because it's just 20% of their waking hours. So the whole community's got to get engaged and I, we see an awful lot of mayors who have the foresight and belief that uh, they want to commit some of their political and financial capital to making that happen. We often look at these inequities as being a, an urban and a suburban thing, but we're actually located, this podcast originates out of Mississippi, where you have a lot of rural areas, um, and, and there aren't even mayors in some of these areas. But what the, the COVID crisis has really exposed is things like, you know, no high-speed internet access in places. And it, how do you kind of raise the bar in these rural spots around the country? Well, it, it's a different form of collaboration. And, and uh, I will say for a long time, so much of our education reform work took for granted and focused on <clears throat> the urban context as though all poverty is concentrated in, in urban areas and all students are either suburban or urban. And 20% of our population lives in rural communities across the United States. And that population justifiably feels neglected and overlooked in a lot of what we talk about in these circles. So um, we're working hard at, at Harvard to try and understand better the realities of, uh, of rural communities and what they're up against. We do some work. One of our laboratories is in southern Illinois, where we work you know, across re a regional level. So you get multiple mayors together. You get county government involved in it. The problem, many of the problems are the same problems. People who don't have access to adequate health care, they don't have stable employment, they don't have, um, you know, they don't have stable housing to go along with it. Uh, that school alone is too weak an intervention. Uh, and particularly when school is interrupted like the way it is now, people are uh, in, in rural areas even more isolated and alienated than in many of our urban areas. But the basic principles of the work of, of this is a collaborative enterprise, community leaders, grass tops and grassroots leaders need to come together and devise solutions and communicate more effectively. Uh, local leaders need to become an advocacy force at the state level and at the national level for getting the resources out to rural communities like the internet. I think that's one of the things in this current crisis that's become now obvious to everyone that in order to get educated, you're going to need, every family's going to need access to the internet. So that's no longer a nice to have, but it's an essential in education. And now we're starting to see that fold into budgets all across the country in this budget season, even though there are significant budget challenges. Uh, again, the uh, book is titled Broader, Bolder, Better, How Schools and Communities Help Students Overcome the Disadvantages of Poverty. Um, this It's a phenomenal book. I mean, I have an advanced copy here. Um, and if you don't mind, I'm going to share it with my co-host, who is a principal. And uh, she she's very much in line with everything that you're saying. And, and I just love that you have it all in one place. 
Well, we're trying to take a broader look at what it's going to take to realize our aspirations. You know, it's easy to it's easy to say things like no child left behind and every student succeeds, but we really want to come to the practical level at which many of your listeners live and work, which is what do I do Monday morning if I want to make this happen? And we're saying, you know, we've asked an awful lot of educators over recent years. Now our whole communities need to get involved because it takes a whole community to provide this, the opportunities and the supports that make it possible for children to go to school every day and be ready to learn. And uh, so figuring out how we do that collectively, uh, I think, is the work of the future. And I'm very hopeful about that. Work. If, if someone wants to get their hands on the book, what's the best way to go about doing that? Um, Harvard Education Publishing is the uh, is the publisher. So just going directly to Harvard Education Press would be the way to go. Yeah, and that's uh, harvardeducationpress.org if anybody wants to look that way. Um, Paul Revel, we really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Are you ready for our pop quiz? I am, Nick. All right. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? I guess I'd, I'm an English major, so I'm a little biased, but I think being able to um, to read, write, and communicate persuasively is hugely important in our society. So I would say language is the place that I would start if you had to narrow it down to one. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Well, uh, financial literacy is an obvious topic. I mean, too many students come up uh, through school not knowing nearly enough about personal finance, about how bank accounts work, about how credit cards work, about how student debt and student loans work. Uh, So we should be doing much more in that area. What does every child deserve? Every child deserves a, a fair opportunity to realize their full potential. So they deserve an education in core subjects and in 21st century skills and social and emotional learning that make it possible to have not only the cognitive skill they need, but also the interpersonal skills, the uh, executive functioning kinds of skills that make it possible for them to be prepared to do 21st century work in a high-skill, high-knowledge economy, to be citizens and leaders in a democracy, to be heads of families, and to be lifelong learners and fulfilled individuals. So they need to be prepared for success and they need to be prepared to be adaptable because as educators, we can't possibly even figure out the challenges they'll be facing 10 years from now, let alone you know 30 or 40 years down the road. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Well, if you talk to educators, for many of them, it's time. We, we have huge aspirations for what we want schools to accomplish, and yet we've underfunded them, and we, we haven't even given them a sufficient amount of time to do all the things that we want them to do. And so uh, providing more time, more services, breaking out of the limitations of place and the old agrarian calendar we have, to uh, take into account the individual needs of students and how we come together to meet those needs, I think that's the biggest challenge. Educators need help. The um, We've got to be at the end of the era where we, we as a society say, you know, education is going to be our shortcut to an equal opportunity society. We'll invest a modest amount of time and money in education and expect them to work miracles. Uh, if we want to have high aspirations for all children, which for moral and economic reasons we should, um, then we're going to have to uh, invest in it as, as whole communities. 
What's the best gift to give an educator? Uh, you know, the best gift is a is sort of a package that includes uh, time, that includes a decent salary, and that includes respect and high quality professional development to enable uh, educators to adapt uh, to the changes in our society. For example, all the changes that have been involved in, in, in taking education onto the internet in recent months. Which teacher changed your life? Well, the teachers that changed my life, and I can think of two in particular, were teachers who shared their joy in learning with me. Their joy became contagious. Their enthusiasm for uh, whatever subject we were looking at, for reading and writing, in my case, uh, was so infectious, was so accessible to me that it made me excited about the things that excited them. So giving that gift of kind of enthusiasm, of um, excitement, of imagination that goes along uh, with a with a faculty member who is just um, pumped up and, and deeply into his or her subject, I think it makes a huge difference for children. And last question, do you prefer pen or pencil? Pen. All right. Again, Paul Revel, we appreciate your time. If somebody likes to keep up with you on social media, is there a certain place you like to hang out? Are you a Twitter or Instagram guy? Um, yeah, I'm Paul Revel at, at, on Twitter. I, I'm not very good at all that. I'm, I'm old-fashioned and, and do a lot of email. And our edredesign.org is the best way to follow what I'm up to. So it's edredesign.org. Yeah, and so if anybody's curious, though, if they do hop on Twitter, your last name is spelled R-E-V-I-L-L-E. So it's at Paul Revel. And then um, the handle looks like for Ed Redesign on Twitter is um, at Ed Redesign Lab. Um, Again, we appreciate your time. It's a phenomenal book, and we enjoy talking to you today. Thanks so much, Nick, for your good questions. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismiss. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. Thank you.